When you make your way through the exhibition space at the National Bonsai and Penjing Museum within the U.S. National Arboretum, you encounter one spectacular bonsai tree after the next. Each one is different and beautiful, their harmonious shapes suggesting a windswept landscape or an ancient story just out of reach. Its most famous resident, the Yamaki Pine, is almost 400 years old and survived the 1945 bombing of Hiroshima. I was given a tour by Andy Bello, a museum specialist and new friend who took time out of his busy schedule to show me the highlights, and there were a lot of them. So it's saying something that the last bonsai on the circuit piqued my interest the most. It's a large, powerful Japanese red pine that's been in training since 1795. It was donated by the Japanese imperial family, and according to Andy, is the only bonsai to ever leave the emperor's personal collection. I had to know more about how it got here. To find out, I spoke to Kathleen Emerson Dell, the curator of exhibitions at the National Bonsai and Penzing Museum. The story features the vision and persistence of a past Arboretum director, Dr. John Creech, who worked behind the scenes during a key moment in American and Japanese diplomacy. I also spoke to curator Michael James about the challenges of preserving this historic bonsai tree, the imperial pine. I'm Doug Still, and this is This Old Tree. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me about what it's like to be this old tree. The regal 228-year-old imperial pine resides in its own fenced-in display area, silhouetted in front of a white wall. It sits in a weathered ceramic container as old as the tree itself, elevated by a large black stone floating in a sea of grass and ferns. It is asymmetrical but balanced, strong but energized. Its coarse bark gives way to clouds of refined needles. It is everything you imagine a bonsai should be, classically formed in every sense. There's no one better to tell the story of the imperial pine coming to America than Kathleen Emerson Dell, who goes by her nickname Ked. She is the curator of exhibitions at the museum, as well as the manager of the archives and digital image database for the U.S. National Arboretum, a horticulturalist, art historian, and archivist all wrapped into one. In actuality, the bonsai story includes the initial formation of the entire collection. We dove right in. So, Ked, thanks for joining me today on This Old Tree. Well, I'm glad to be here. I was hoping you could tell me about just the, the origins of the collection and how did that occur and, and when did that happen? Right. So, it's a wonderful story that goes back to a fabulous director of the National Arboretum, uh, Dr. John Creech, who had just been named director of the U.S. National Arboretum in 1973. And the call went out 
to all of the agencies, all of the executive branch agencies, uh, for ideas to celebrate the American Bicentennial that was coming up in 1976. So Dr. Creech, having been a plant explorer in Japan for some time during his career, uh, was remembering many trips to Japan where he had seen bonsai. Uh, it was just something in passing. You know, it wasn't his main, per- you know, he was mostly out in the wilds of Japan looking for azaleas and uh, crepe myrtle and, you know, collecting seed. Um, he was up in the mountains. He was in the mountains a lot. And, uh, but when he came back into the towns, uh, his interpreter that he was with, who was also uh, a botanist, uh, sort of introduced him to bonsai. So over the years, he had gotten to know some of the people in the bonsai world, and uh, he thought, boy, wouldn't this make a fabulous gift uh, if the Japanese could donate a few bonsai to the U.S. National Arboretum uh, so that we could promote uh, this, an understanding of beauty and botany at the same time, because that's what it's all about. And at that time was... Were bonsai as popular as they are now in the United States? Uh, Not so much. There were a few bonsai clubs and there were some associations. It was generally viewed as a hobby. Uh, A lot of retired people would be interested in it. Um, When people came back from the war after World War II, they had been exposed to bonsai, the military and uh, the people who were stationed in Japan to help with the rebuilding. And so they brought home a knowledge of this and some of them pursued it. But there were very few teachers. Um, Yuji Yoshimura came to the States in the 60s, I think. And he came to the Brooklyn Botanic Garden and began teaching classes there, as well as taking care of a small collection they had and helping to build it. In fact, Dr. Creech also invited Mr. Yoshimura to the National Arboretum during his first year to help acquire a bonsai from a local nursery in Maryland, a boxwood. They held a bonsai pruning workshop together, which was well attended, demonstrating a burgeoning public interest in the Arboretum developing its own collection. They could do this without losing sight of the primary mission within the USDA to conduct research and promote better practices in agriculture and the nursery industry. So Dr. Creech was looking to raise the profile of bonsai. He in was. A way. He was. He was absolutely doing that. He thought this would it would be a fabulous position for for the US National Arboretum to be promoting this. So he had this idea when he was in Japan then. So in 1973, he had the idea that maybe the Japanese, you know, would there, he put the question to some Japanese friends he had and said, do you think that, um, that Japan would be interested in, in a small gift, a donation of some bonsai trees so that we could just feature them? So it sort of started from this small idea, a few small bonsai so in 1973, he had this idea. He sent it up. He also had the idea to maybe do like a national herb garden. He had a whole list of ideas. And he sent it up to the Secretary of Agriculture. And basically, they said, nah, we're not interested. You know, he heard nothing about it. So 
he still pursued it, though. He thought, you know, I think there's a way to do this, even though it's not sort of official. Maybe it can be more from the Japanese side rather than, you know, that it's offered and and we'll see what happens, that we won't reject it, that the department won't reject it. So he started working a little bit more from the Japanese side to see, you know, if they would uh, sort of take up this idea and see what they could come up with. And so it gradually developed over about a year, uh, the back and forth. They, they wanted to know, you know, how would the trees get to America? And at the time, Dr. Creech thought that they were working on an idea that maybe um, an empty U.S. cargo plane could fly them back to the States because oftentimes the cargo planes are delivering things to the embassy and to Japan and they come back empty. And they're coming back empty. So he thought this was a great idea. Well, ultimately, um, at almost the last minute, it was rejected at a very high level at the Pentagon. They said, no, we can't do this. Um, even though Dr. Creech pointed out that, well, you know, the early naval ships used to do this all the time, <laughs> that, that they would bring back botanical specimens from all over the world. Uh and but they weren't buying it. They said, nope, nope, it just it'll look bad. It is what it is. Or just and how it just how it looks. They didn't I think that was it, that they felt that, you know, regulations had changed and that this was not official US business or something. But it kind of adds to the drama of the story. This whole the pressure. You could feel it. You can feel it in Dr. Creech's letters that he's writing and in his reminiscences. He published a a small book afterwards, you know, long after he had retired, a little booklet called The Bonsai Saga. And uh, he's very dramatic about everything. You know? <laughs> well, it sounds like he went through a lot. He did go through a lot, but it meant a lot to him. You could, you could tell. And uh, so, so over the course of this year of planning and how it grew, you know, he had assured the Japanese that we would find a way to get the trees here. And so the Japanese on their part, and when I say the Japanese, he, uh, at this point, he's dealing with the Nippon Bonsai Association, which is the Japan Bonsai Association. So they are an organization of all of the bonsai uh, growers and uh, nurseries and sellers. Where are they based? And they're based in Tokyo. Then, and he's reassuring him. So in 1974 is when the Nippon Bonsai Association felt that this, that, you know, that this was going to be taken seriously, the idea of the gift, and that they would start to um, try to find funding on their side. So they went to uh, their government, the Japanese Diet, and started talking to people about this. They wanted to get funding from the government. Uh, because this was going to be a diplomatic gift. Unfortunately, the the funding for that year had already been decided, so it was going to have to be put off what the government was going to give them for a little bit. And so they went to the Japan Foundation. And so they got funding from the Japan Foundation and from some other sources, I understand. So they were, so it was becoming more of a reality because they needed to have money in order to put it together because it was going to be quite costly to sort of gather. So for transportation, gathering all these trees together, 
repotting them, building crates for them, getting them to the airport. Yeah, it was a much more of a serious endeavor that, than it was. Dr. Creech thought at first, wasn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. He was surprised. They have to be protected. <laughs> and as they grew bigger, they needed a bigger plane. They needed more space. Originally, when... Now, it was interesting... Um, in 1974, Dr. Creech got to stop off and actually meet with them in person because Dr. Creech was on the in the first delegation to go to the People's Republic of China. It was a delegation of biological science, scientists. So he was able to, this was after China opened to the rest of the world after Nixon went there. And uh he was able to do a stopover in Japan, and they were able to ask a lot of questions face-to-face with a translator. They had concerns about bear rooting, which they did not want to do. The United States had instituted strict quarantine rules around the importation of plants since 1910, when the first batch of cherry trees gifted and planted at the Tidal Basin were infested and eventually burned. Much of the subsequent concern centered around insects or diseases within the soil arriving with new plants. But it was devastating for bonsai because uh, to bear root a bonsai is to put an incredible amount of stress on it. And also they had to be sanitized, you know, with all sorts of chemicals. And in 1960, uh, someone had bought a very important bonsai in Japan to bring back to the United States and donate to the Brooklyn Botanic Garden to their collection. It was a very famous tree. It had a name. It was called Fudo. And uh, it did not survive. Yeah, when you're dealing with something possibly a couple hundred years old, yeah, you need to let it be and yeah. not disturb it as much as possible. And it's already... A, a traumatic experience right. to, to ship it around the world. So that was something that worried people. People did not want to donate trees to a project where it might possibly die. Dr. Creech was able to work with the person who was the head of quarantine uh, services, and they worked out a deal that the trees did not have to be bare-rooted. They needed to be inspected in Japan before they came over. Uh, And then they had to remain in quarantine in the United States at one of the quarantine stations for over a year. So if they're looking forward to the bicentennial, he's getting this done just in time. Yes, absolutely. It's amazing that he just kept pushing. He kept going forward. I think he did not realize how much was involved or he wouldn't have even started this. (laughs) Dr. Creech worked out all the agreements between the U.S. government and the Nippon Bonsai Association. The repotting, crating, shipping, quarantine, and future cultural practices, which allowed the funding to fall into place. But then they had to find and select the bonsai trees with the bicentennial deadline looming. When we come back from a quick break... Ked tells about how the trees were chosen and the surprise involvement of the Japanese imperial family. I'm Doug Still, and you're listening to This Old Tree.
had to select and collect from everywhere. They went all over Japan. They talked to everyone. How many did they find? So what they wanted to do was they wanted to get 50 trees to represent the 50 states of the United States of America. Perfect. So it wasn't, they weren't matching a tree to a state. It was just the symbolic number of 50. That had a lot of importance. So they were looking for 50 trees to pull together and they wanted a range of species. Uh, They wanted from north to south. They wanted from all over Japan. They wanted to represent the variety of trees that are used in bonsai in Japan. Because not every tree is good at becoming a bonsai. (laughs) So the Nippon Bonsai Association put the word out and they were mainly collecting from private collections looking for donations? Yes, they were looking for donations, but then they needed some money because they needed to pay some businesses. You know, when you have a bonsai nursery, you are in the business, you care for bonsai, and you also create and sell bonsai. And in order to compensate some of these businesses, they wanted to raise money to do that. So if they picked out a tree, they would be able to give some compensation. So there were some from businesses as well. There were some, but uh, the business, I mean, these were some of the best bonsai growers in the country as well. Some people donated their trees. Some people got some compensation. And then On the other hand, in order to get funding from the government, they wanted to include a number of high-ranking politicians as the donors of the trees so that the name of the donor would be the name of this important person. Now, we never got a breakdown on exactly what category each tree fell into, which ones were outright donations from, from the person who owned it versus because some people were owners in Japan. It's very interesting in Japan. um, The bonsai world is a little bit like um, the horse racing world in this country that you can have an owner of a favorite horse of a famous horse uh, who has nothing to do with the training of that horse. I see. It pays for the training. So a lot of the famous bonsai who are owned by uh, wealthy businessmen in Japan are actually stabled at bonsai nurseries and are cared for by very important bonsai masters. And then these trees are entered into competitions for awards. Interesting. (laughs) So it's part of the, it's very different from the bonsai world in America. And that's still happening? Yes, it is still happening. That's, it's just there. It's the model of how things are done there. Um, And, but a lot of these owners appreciate good bonsai, but they don't actually work on their own bonsai. I imagine there was a well-kept provenance for each bonsai that came over. Can you trace the owners for each one? Right. So as as I just said, we don't know specifically beyond the names that were given to us that were attached to each bonsai. We We cannot be for absolutely sure which ones came from whom unless it is a bonsai name that we know. So other than that, we got a list of the trees, where they were from, what province they had come from, and the age in training, because that's how bonsai are measured. Some bonsai 
come from the wild. They're collected in the wild. They might be um, a scraggly old tree growing on the top of a mountain that could be a couple of hundred years old. And so there is one tradition is to go out and collect interesting specimens that have already been, and I'm air quoting, deformed by nature. They have been stressed. They have been, uh, they are survivors. And oftentimes these old craggy trees show the results of their survival. It's like the bristlecone pines, you know. You know, yeah. out in the West where you have a lot of dead wood and then you have this live trunk. So that's interesting. So they're already old. They're already old, but we don't know how old they are. So in bonsai, we count the years as years in training. So we, that's what we count. And so you could have a, a tree that you start as a seedling. So that is actually going to reflect the true age of that tree, its years in training. So we got a little bit of that information, just a little bit, but not much. Because I think at the time they didn't realize how important that information would be. In Japan, it was just known. It's, you know, in the long history of these trees, they move around a bit. You know, it might have been created by one bonsai master and then it goes to another one and another one. I mean, they sort of move around. So there were these 50 trees that they found, but then there were three more added. Right. Could you talk about those three? This is where the story gets interesting. Dr. Creech arrives in Japan in. 1975 in March. He is there to sort of oversee the final processes. We knew at that point 50 trees were coming. Uh, He did not know the sizes of the trees. When I looked back through the old records, um, there had been several lists that had been sent to Dr. Creech for approval. They did not include sizes. They were only species. So evidently, when when Dr. Creech arrived um, in like, you know, halfway through March, by the end of March, he has to leave with the trees. So halfway through March, they drive him from the airport to the Nippon Bonsai headquarters where they've gathered the trees. And he just, he said, I was so jet lagged, but I got out of the car and my eyes were just, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. These were significant trees. These were... (laughs) These were not small trees. He was probably like, oh boy, as well. And no, what he was really thinking was the, how much was it? $2,300 had been allocated for, you know, space in a cargo plane, in a Pan Am cargo plane to bring home these small, 50 small trees, right? And he immediately thought $2,300 is not going to do it. So he's on the phone with Pan Am this whole time. And he says, I think they're bigger. I think you need to come look at this. (laughs) So the Pan Am representative comes and looks and goes, okay. And so then it goes up to 9,000 and Dr. Creech is, you know, telegraphing back to the States and going, look what, you know, this is going on. And then it went up again and it was like, (laughs) and then when they actually started building the crates that went around them, then it was Dr. Creech said, oh, there's just no, you know, he says, it doesn't matter what they say. They got to come. Ship first, bill later. So fortunately, Pan Am 
only charged for the cost of the flight. So they were not even charging what they would charge a retailer or someone to move goods. Nice. It ended up being $19,000. When Dr. Creech arrived back in the country, he said, I didn't know if I even had a job, you know, if I was going to be (laughs) fired because of this, because he said, I had to go ahead with it. Um, And fortunately, he didn't lose his job. It had become a big uh, PR thing, you know, this, the excitement generated about it. So they couldn't fire him. Um, I don't know if he was exaggerating that or not, but when he arrived, he found out that um, the imperial collections, there were three imperial bonsai collections. So there was the emperor's collection, which was held at the imperial palace in Tokyo. And then there were collections um, in his his two brothers families uh there were collections so one was the chichibu family and the other was the takamatsu family so sometime in the fall of 1974 the imperial family was planning for the emperor to make his first and only trip to the united states what they were planning was a big deal a watershed moment in the history of u.s and japanese relations This would not only be the first visit by Emperor Hirohito three decades after the devastation of World War II, it would be the first visit to America by a Japanese emperor ever. It would be a moment of healing. Because of the confluence of his trip to America, which was planned for October of 1975, in the run-up to that is when they thought, the imperial family thought, it would be a good idea to include gifts from the emperor to the United States through this vehicle that he could just piggyback onto this. Because sure. you know, whenever there are state dinner, state visits, there's always gifts exchanged, significant gifts. And so this was thought to be something really special that the emperor could do. And uh, so there was one tree chosen from each of the imperial collections and the tree from the emperor's collection was the uh, Japanese red pine, Pinus densiflora. And uh, it was in training since 1795, is Incredible. the information that we got. That, so it's over 200 years now. It's um, like 228 years old now, or in training for 228 years. Uh And of course, it was probably older than that, but we don't know. So Dr. Creech didn't really know about this until, I I don't have any records that he knew about it before he arrived in Japan. The trees from the Imperial Collections were not included in the exhibit that was held. There was a big dedication ceremony that was held at the Otani Hotel. Thousands of people were invited from the... Uh, the Western diplomatic community that was in Japan at the time, plus the whole Nippon Bonsai Association, everyone who had donated a tree, everyone whose name was associated with this, people from the Japanese government, uh, conservatives and liberals. According to Dr. Creech, he said it's the first time the conservatives and the liberals were in the one room uh, for a big <laughs> event where they weren't arguing with each other. Right. Well, trees bring people together. So, so exactly. 
Exactly. So it was a big deal. So the empress trees were not included in that ceremony. They arrived. Uh, we have some film of them arriving at the Nippon Bonsai Association right during the time that Dr. Creech was there for them to get repotted, you know, back into their same pots and uh, crated along with the other 50 trees. So he found out when he got to Japan? That is pretty, that's what the records tell us, that he did not know of this. Now, I don't know if he had heard something, but it, nothing was made official until he was there. I think they were sort of trying to keep it on the down low. What a score. Yeah, it would be interesting. I don't think the Japanese people knew until it had happened. I wonder if there's security reasons. Well, that may be that some people uh, may have been very upset to hear that this was mm. happening. It was still, it was still a time. I mean, I went to Japan in the 1980s, and there were still diehard nationalists who were mm. pro emperor, still considered the emperor a god. That they were, they were a, a thorn in the side of the democracy and could possibly make trouble. Right. And just to offer up something of such cultural value. Exactly. Exactly. For some so, people might have been difficult. So that may have been one of the reasons why it was kept kind of quiet. Now, did the emperor have a hand in choosing this bonsai? We have no idea. We have absolutely no idea. The emperor, it's very interesting. The emperor was... Uh, you know, his interest in life was marine biology. He is often said if he were not emperor, he would have been a marine biologist. <laughs> so that was his very serious, he devoted um, time every day almost to, to, to sort of keep up with the field, to, to read papers, to, you know, he had his own laboratory at the palace. Um, he loved nature. He walked every day on the palace grounds, loved the forested area of the palace grounds. So we don't know the extent of his interest in bonsai. Bonsai were used ceremonially in the palace. Um, there are hundreds of trees in the collection. And they tend to be, a lot of them are larger trees because of their sort of state importance that they they need to hold a position um, in a large hall maybe in a or... large hall on either side of an entrance along pathways they're leading to the palace um so the size of this bonsai is not unusual in the imperial collection Right. out of, You know, there are more of this size in the Imperial Collection than in any other collection in Japan. Um, they also have a lot of more regular size, two-footers, three-footers. They have the whole range, but they have a lot of these sort of that had been in the collection, the Imperial Collection, for possibly hundreds of years uh, because they were used ceremonially. Right. And everything is pomp and circumstance when it comes to the emperor. The might of the empire is shown through, you know, these impressive trees. And what's interesting is this red pine is, not only is it large, it is in a style 
that is uh, called an informal upright, which means the trunk has like S curves in it, you know, a big gentle curve and then another curve at the top, um, which is a very relaxed kind of informal rather than a formal upright would be totally rigid, straight up and down, uh, which is how these would grow in nature if there were no uh prevailing winds constantly or if it wasn't being buffeted or or beaten down with snow or you know but so it had been trained into this shape and what's interesting because I'm an art historian of Japanese art and uh this type of tree is used on the stage of no performances a painting of this tree a large red pine with a a curving trunk behind it and a big, massive trunk. And this was sort of standard for a no performance, which is performed outside, usually on temple grounds. So they might have had that in mind. They might have had that in mind. But also when you look at um, pictures from the daimyo era, the feudal era in Japan, when shoguns were in control of the country, they often in their reception halls, uh, you know, big halls with tatami mat uh, and a little raised area at the front where uh, the daimyo would sit with his top retainers on either side. Behind him, usually painted on sliding screens, would be a giant tree just like this, a giant curved trunk. And it was supposed to uh, communicate the power of this shogun. So I can only imagine in the spring of 75, when mm-hmm. they are selecting these three trees from the three imperial collections, that they ask the bonsai masters to, mm. to choose one. Hmm. I, I can see that going down and I can yeah. imagine yeah. how that must have felt to them after spending their career caring for a tree. Yeah. Uh, They were either honored, greatly honored, that this tree was going to go to America and would represent perhaps the emperor in America, that we were honoring them. Um, That would be the best possible way they thought of it. Or perhaps they were a little worried. Like, what do these Americans know about taking care of uh, these bonsai? Um, and that was a worry of a lot of the Japanese, uh, the bonsai people that, um, they had said they agreed that they would come over and check on the trees, uh, to make sure everything was going well, that they would, um, sort of help the curator in America. Uh, we got, uh, other Japanese, John Naka came to help out, uh, Yuji Yoshimura, uh, it was with those assurances that people felt better that there were going to be people right. there who really understood uh, while the curator was was learning and um, just he threw himself into it. This Bob Dreschler, who had known nothing about bonsai up to that point, he had been working with one of the uh, tree breeders uh, at the Arboretum. And he expressed an interest, you know, when Dr. Creech said, we're going to have to find a curator uh, to to be in charge of this whole collection. So he absolutely loved that and stayed with the collection for, golly, a long time. 
I think he was in the late 90s, he retired. So he was with the collection for quite a number of years. Affectionately known as Bonsai Bob, Bob Dreschler was the first curator of the National Bonsai and Penjing Museum. But I had a chance to chat with the current curator, Michael James, about the legacy of caring for the imperial pine and the 52 other historic bonsai donated by Japan. And then we'll hear more from Ked about their reception in Washington, coming up after the break. spoke to Ked a lot about the history of the imperial pine, but I was wondering, I wanted to ask you, in caring for it, what are its special needs? Well, the red pine in general, it needs uh, water, but relatively speaking, it can be on the drier side. This is Michael James, who's been curator at the museum since 2018, and who started as a volunteer back in 2001 in order to study the art of bonsai. But there are imperial pine is four and a half feet tall. So it's a big bonsai, still a small tree, but it's a big bonsai in a container that is only about two feet deep. So there's not a lot of soil in that container for all the foliage that it has. Right. And so water it, management, very important. It's the most important thing that, that you can do for any bonsai. So, you know, after that, you find that place, that setting or that microclimate where the tree is receiving enough sun and shelter from wind and, and things like that. Um, yeah, bonsai is just so connected to the environment that the trees are growing. I asked him how he balances the horticultural versus the artistic aspects of caring for a bonsai. When it comes to... Um, bonsai or general landscaping and gardening, the horticulture has to come first. It's more important to have a healthy tree than to have a dead tree that looks really cool. So it's it's not, you know, it really just health alone makes the, the plants beautiful. Uh, but then with bonsai, there's also, they're, they're more than just healthy. It's the, it's the negative space between the branching. It's where the branching is. It's how dense the foliage is and where it's dense and where it's light and all those things are just right. So after the tree is healthy, those, those um, artistic principles can be then applied. And, and those artistic principles are also, you know, often related to the growth habit, the natural growth habit of that tree. Bonsai is really mimicking the way trees look in their natural landscape. Right. So you sort of adjust to how the tree's growing and work from there. Yeah, it's like a collaboration. It's a collaboration between plants and humans, as well as multi-generations of humans. Because if you do it right, bonsai trees outlive, you know, the average human. So, uh, well, any human that I know. So the imperial pine, for instance, is 228 years old now. So I, I've just been caring for it a fraction of that time. Right. You pass it from one generation to the next. What sort of historical guidance do you have for caring for it? 
do you use photos? Um, is there anything written or any research you've done? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, here at the museum, we are trying to maintain many of these trees historically. So this uh, Japanese red pine is a classical bonsai. It has this form that is um, an S-curve. It's like about two and a half full curves. And then the, the, the foliage has a lot of negative space in between. So the branches are they're kind of alternating in and out. So we have branches at the bottom that are really being shaded a lot from the branches above. And pines being apically dominant, they're putting a lot of their energy to their canopy because that's the area that's getting the most sun and they love sun. That area has to be pruned really carefully so that enough sun does pass through the canopy that the bottom branches don't weaken and die. Has its shape or look changed much over time? Inevitably, the trees change in, in shape. But in general, the style is trying to be maintained. And this is a classical bonsai where you know many of the branches are coming from the outside of curves. And um, this tree actually has a sister tree in the Imperial Garden. It's still there and cared huh. for by the Japanese Imperial household. And their way, from what I've researched, is, is a very um, natural way of pruning where really trying to add very little human intervention. You're trying to let the plant do its own thing. You're, the, the branches are not necessarily growing young and youthfully upward and straight. We're not, we're trying to make those branches have age look to them and, and meandering and, and tapering and all the things that make a small tree look old, but we're not adding too much wire, which is something that we will do to a lot of Japanese bonsai um, in the imperial household. Their, their way of pruning is just very um, More directional pruning, directional, and it's a very old style. And the more modern way is adding a lot of wire and, and carving and doing a lot of different things to manipulate the tree. So we're doing, we're not doing all of that on this tree because Historically, uh, that's not how it's being. Its sister is being cared for in the imperial household. Interesting. So you've got your eye on its partner as well, and how it's being trained. And mm -hmm. so there's some, you know, artistic communication between the two, so to speak. Yeah. Is it meant to be seen in the round, or is it meant to be viewed from one side or three sides? Large trees like this are often flanking entrances in gardens. Now, we the way it's displayed here at the museum is in with a garden backdrop, a Japanese garden growing behind it. So the viewer doesn't have the option of walking the full way around it, although it does look good on from all sides, and it's in a round container, which often lend themselves to being viewed from all sides. But um, in our case, we just turn it so that it twice a week, so that it receives balanced sunlight on all sides and it doesn't get too strong on one side rather than the other. But we, it is uh, designed to have a front. So there, on the weekends, the front is showing out 
for the viewers and the guests here at the Bonsai and Penjing Museum. And that is the what we feel is the most ideal side to view it. The, and that's because you can have a good view of the beautiful, tr- graceful curve of the trunk line and the taper of it. And um, the negative space in between the branches is just right. Ed mentioned that sometimes there's a resting period for some trees um, for health reasons or for other reasons. Could you talk about that? And then how much of a resting period does the imperial pine receive? Well, um, the resting period is kind of, uh, it's almost more for the caretaker because um, it's its a time where you stop working on the tree. Um, sometimes in a museum setting, it's um, you want to prune everything to perfection all the time because they're being viewed by so many people. But you have to sometimes just say the best thing to do is nothing at all. And right. the rest time for a plant is a time of growing and strong growth. It's not really rest. It's it's rest from um, cultural practices. Right. Yeah, cutting and tipping and pinching and all those things that are done to a bonsai to keep it in that shape. Could you talk about soil replacement and just what the process is? This tree, uh, being over 200 years old, has probably been repotted 40 times at least over the those 200 some years. So um, it has to be done. This tree stays outside year round and the sun breaks down the surface of the soil, watering breaks down the surface of the soil and, and freezing and thawing breaks it down too. So all, we try to have a very coarse, airy soil that water can just fall right down through. And the water comes right out the drainage hole in the bottom. But over time, that soil breaks down and it has to be replaced. And, and sometimes just looking at the tree's leaves, they, they give clues and communicate, um, you know, whether the roots are healthy or not. There was a time when this tree was yellowing and we really didn't know why for sure. And well, oftentimes when everything else is being done right, it's the roots. So we repotted and everything looked good on the outside where it had been, the soil had been removed most frequently over past repottings. But there was a time when we got to a point underneath the trunk, this, this particular repot, repotting day. And it, um, we had, we knew we were in an area that had never, or at least not for a very long time, been removed. But it was getting very close to under the trunk of the trees. That's a dangerous spot to remove for the health of it. And we took out the soil and um, we found an area that had been totally compacted and broken down. It was, it was clay that was just anaerobic. There were no roots in it. Was that some of the original soil or... I don't know, pre-76 soil? I think it was because we, as we were removing it, we even found shards of ceramics, old ceramics. They could have been the remnants of one of the earlier containers for this tree. Wow, when it was in a much smaller. Yes, and now it's in an antique Chinese container that's very old, you know, old, you know, as old as the tree. You've got an archaeological project right in your uh, your bonsai collection. 
Yeah, it, well, repotting is a little bit like archaeology. Do you sometimes feel the weight of historical importance in your work? I mean, you have the eyes of two countries on these bonsai in a way. Yeah, well, there, I get two comments frequently, especially when I'm in, like working in front of a very old tree like the imperial pine. Um, one is, this must be the best job in the world. And then the other <laughs> is, uh, wow, this must be really stressful taking care of trees that are this old. Yeah, my um, mind went there. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. I, I learned a lot. And I love the pine. I love all of the bonsai at the at the museum. Doing great work. Yeah, thanks. I hope every anyone listening can come out and visit in person. Uh, it's there's no way to describe these trees, and, and they're jaw dropping to so many visitors. Now back to Ked's story. Oh, the most important story. So they got on the the plane. Uh, Dr. Creech and his assistant, uh, Chip March, who had been with him, uh, they were in the back of the cargo plane and they just laid down amongst the bonsai and slept all the way <laughs> to San Francisco where Pan Am could bring it that far. Pan Am could not do uh, domestic flights. So they arranged for two United cargo planes. So it was broken up into two cargo planes and they flew them across the country to Baltimore. So then they went into quarantine in Glendale, Maryland, which is one of the quarantine stations close to the uh, U.S. National Arboretum in Washington. And so Bob Dreschler, the curator, moved up there to take care of them for that year, for more than a year. Wow, he moved to take care of these trees yes, for a year. he did. So then the emperor is coming to America for his trip in October. Well, the trees are still in quarantine. The emperor uh, put through a request, or his his people did, that he would like to visit his tree in America in quarantine. Well, the emperor was traveling with about 50 courtiers in his pack, in addition to his wife and hers, and, and 450 Japanese journalists and TV people. Wow. TV operators. So, and they were following his every move, absolutely every move. So, it was decided by the State Department that the facility was too small to allow this entourage in to visit. So, it was decided they would give permission, the Agriculture Department gave permission, the tree could be brought to the White House for a reception. I think for this, they could make an allowance. Yes, <laughs> yes. So the tree was moved. Four men uh, had to carry the tree in a sling because the pot is really deep. The pot is about a foot and a half deep and about a foot and maybe, no, it's two feet wide, maybe two feet deep. The tree is huge. It was heavy. The way these are moved in Japan is you have a sling that cradles it, and then you have two bamboo poles that go through the sling. You have four men carrying, you know, each man takes one end of one pole. When they got to the White House, they found out that they had to take it upstairs to the second floor because the reception for the emperor before the big state dinner was going to be held in the yellow oval room, which was part of the Ford's private area in the White House. I see. 
So Bob Dreschler and his three companions are carrying this bonsai up marble steps to the second floor. And he said all he could think about was if he slipped and this tree went tumbling down these <laughs> yeah. steps and the emperor is here. And he just, that's all he was thinking about was just putting his feet right. Right. So they got it there. And we actually have a picture of the emperor and uh, his wife, the empress, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Ford gazing at the tree. The White House photographer is taking the pictures. Of course, he didn't take a picture of the tree. We just get like a little, we get some needles in the side right. of the shot to show what they're looking at. And they're just very solemnly looking at it. In future trips to the White House with our trees, the photographers did much better in terms of arranging people on either side of the tree to take a picture of it. But but this was the first trip to the White House of any of our trees in the collection. Many trees from the Japanese collection have gone to the White House since then for various receptions for, for uh, the prime ministers, mostly. So it did go there and then it came back the next day. So the emperor was very pleased to see that it was very happy in its new environment, he thought. Wonderful. And to underscore that, his sister-in-law, who had took great interest in the collection that her husband had inherited. So this was Princess Chichibu. She visited the United States and came to visit the collection and to see the tree that had come out of her collection, what she considered her collection, because she had more interest in the, in the bonsai than her husband did. Um, so that was 1978. And while she was visiting, the museum had already opened, the pavilion had opened. Uh, it's, it's, uh, there's no roof on the pavilion, so the trees get a lot of sun and rain and they thrive. And um, while she was visiting and the State Department was with her and taking her around and they were walking out to leave and they passed the emperor's pine, and there was a bird's nest in it. A robin had built a nest in it that spring. Huh. And uh, the babies had hatched. And they were all, you know how babies are with their hungry mouths. They were all <laughs> peeping and had these hungry mouths. And she just, oh my God, she got so excited. She was moved. She was so moved. And and so then there was ooing and awing. She was there with the emperor or with the ambassador's wife and um, I believe her son was with her, and they just had to stop and talk about this and take pictures of it. And and at that point, Dr. Creech says, the State Department official just threw up his hands. It's like they were totally off schedule. <laughs> but, but she said this was a sign that the collection was thriving in America and had been accepted, and they were happy, and nature was happy that they were there. And what a so, relief. It was a sign. So that um, has been the story of the Imperial Pine in America. Amazing. Have you met any dignitaries next to the pine? Oh, who is the latest? The last uh, important trip was when uh, Melania Trump brought uh, the prime minister's wife on a visit several years ago. So we were just pleased that we were still in the hearts and minds of the people in the White House that were always available. Hillary Clinton asked for uh, a tree that had been given uh, to her husband during his uh, presidency. She, When she was Secretary of State, she asked if that tree could be brought to the 
the reception she was holding for her counterpart from Japan. Um, so they continue to perform a very, a very important function um, in the Washington, D.C. area. We do not really let them travel much further than that because everyone comes to see them and they want to see the imperial pine or the pine that survived Hiroshima. I So they kind of switch positions within the pavilion. So the entrance, the first thing you see when you enter the Japanese pavilion used to be the imperial pine. And the Yamaki pine was the last one that you would see. It had its own stage as you were, you know, nothing else was near it. And so then with the prominence and the rise to fame of the Yamaki pine, they switched positions. But I think that the emperor's pine is happy being sort of in a more humble position in the back. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a quieter place and he seems, it seems perfectly content to be there and is thriving and uh, really holds up you know, the, the, it's the curtain call. Right. (laughs) (laughs) When you, when you visit, you know, you have the opening act and then you have all these other wonderful trees from Japan. And then you have the emperor's tree in all of its majesty. Well, Ked, thanks for telling the story of the imperial pine. You've been a delight and I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be able to talk about this tree you really feel like you are following in footsteps because taking care of bonsai is you are privileged to to only be part of its life for a short time and you think of all the people who have taken care of this tree in particular over the years and you become part of that collective family That was so well said, and how special to have Ked and Michael on the show to welcome us into their world. Thank you both. And I hope everyone makes a point of visiting the U.S. National Arboretum the next time you're in D.C. to see the Imperial Pine and all its peace-promoting symbolism, as well as the entire collection at the National Bonsai and Penzing Museum. And thank you, tree lovers, for listening once again. If you like the show and feel so moved, please leave a review on whatever podcast app you listen to. That would really help us out. Follow on Facebook or Instagram to see photos of the Imperial Pine and past featured trees. And the show website is thisoldtree.show. Thanks to Anne and Tony for being the very first Patreon subscribers. Your support is appreciated. See you next time. I'm Doug Still, and this is This Old Tree. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me About what it's like to be this old tree Shadow and shade Kids down the block are selling lemonade Send them down a cool breeze, a sweet cascade Tailor made by this old tree